The text for our sermon this morning comes from Psalm 139, and this morning we'll be reading the last six verses, verses 19 through 24. Psalm 139, 19-24 Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men! For they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do, not, do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe them who rise against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. This time, I'd like to call our kids forward. Every time we end our church service, we pray what we call the Lord's Prayer. Actually, we pray it here at Freedom's Reformed Church at the end of every meeting we have. And some of you may do like our family does. We pray this prayer as a family after our own time of family worship. Near the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, we say, Thy kingdom come. The word thy is another word for your. So we're saying to God, your kingdom come. We're asking God to build his kingdom. All kingdoms have two types of people in them. The king and The citizens. The king is the ruler, and the citizens are the people who belong to that land, the people who were born in it. And kingdoms are like people. They have friends, and they have enemies. Friends of a kingdom would be the citizens, the people who live in that land and who love their king. Enemies of a kingdom would be those from another land who hate the king and want to see the kingdom destroyed. Some of those enemies will be living in their own land, while others might be living within your land and working secretly to cause harm to your king and his kingdom. Jesus is king over his church. Actually, he's king over the whole universe. But he shows his power in his church. And the kingdom of God, just like any other kingdom, has enemies. Since God is holy, perfect, and good, all his enemies are evil sinful, and bad. And all around the world, there are people who want to see God's kingdom fall. They want to see the church not be a voice for God in the world. And this is because they love their sin. When God speaks through His Bible, and through the preaching of His Bible by His ministers, God is showing His love to His friends and His anger to His enemies. Jesus said that He is the light of the world. And what this means is that whenever His Word is preached, the light of God shines on the darkness of the world. The darkness of the world is its sin. And Jesus said that men love darkness more than light because they love doing sinful things. Now the Bible calls the enemies of God, (coughs) excuse me, the world the flesh, and the devil. Now, the world doesn't mean the planet Earth. It means the life of the whole world, all the people of the world that live as enemies of God and His Word. The flesh, that's our sinful nature. We are all born as sinners. Remember, we've learned that cows have baby cows, 
Sheep have baby sheep, and sinners have baby sinners. Because we are all born as sinners, our hearts love sin. That's why no one has ever taught you to lie or to disobey mom and dad, and yet you know how to do it. The devil is an evil spirit that fights against God. These are the enemies of God. We may not know it, but all around us, every minute of every day, there is a war going on between the world, which is the kingdom of the devil, and the kingdom of God. I know that might sound scary, but I want to tell you we have no reason to be afraid. Imagine if an ant tried to attack an elephant. The elephant probably wouldn't even notice. But let's imagine that he did notice. What would he do? He'd laugh, wouldn't he? He might even tease the ant. Hey, hit me harder the next time. Is that the best you can do? Okay, I'll close my eyes this time and put my hands behind my back. Give me your best shot. The fighting of the world against the kingdom of God is even sillier than an ant fighting against an elephant. In the book of Psalms, chapter 2, the Bible tells us that when the enemies of God plan their fight against God and, and Jesus as the king of his church, that God sits in heaven and laughs at them because they are not going to win. So when we pray, thy kingdom come, we are asking God to defeat his enemies and to save his people. The verses that we just read teach us the same thing. Jesus is speaking in these verses, telling us about how strong his anger is against those who fight against God and his rule as king. We're going to pray, and then you can return to your seat. O Heavenly Father, thy word is perfect, restoring the soul, making wise the simple, and enlightening the eyes of the blind, the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believes. We, however, are by nature blind and incapable of doing anything good, and thou wilt relieve only those who have a broken and contrite heart and who revere thy word. We entreat thee that thou wouldst illumine our darkened minds with thy Holy Spirit and give us a humble heart, free from all haughtiness and carnal wisdom in order that we, hearing thy word, may rightly understand it and regulate our lives accordingly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This morning we'll be closing our series on the divine attributes and closing our study of Psalm 139. I trust you've seen what an amazing passage Psalm 139 truly is. In closing out our series on the divine attributes, we'll be looking at the wrath of God. This isn't perhaps the ideal place to end, but since we've been using Psalm 139 as our guide, and that's where Psalm 139 ends, well, that's where we're going to end too. In handling a subject like this, there's, there's no way to treat everything that might come up, and so we're limiting ourselves to three points that we can argue from our text. And thus, our outline runs as follows. One, God's wrath, the fact. Secondly, God's wrath against whom? And thirdly, God's wrath and how it is mirrored by us. So first, God's wrath, the fact. Last week we noted how dangerously wrong it is to say that God loves everyone the same. I know that at first blush that might sound shocking to us, but I'm going to insist that this is because we have been inundated 
with liberal twisting of Scripture. Church history is my particular field, if you haven't uh, figured that out yet, and give me a little more time. I have read tens of thousands of pages from the church fathers, those are the authors of the first eight centuries or so of church history, from the medieval era, the Reformation era, the early modern era, all the way to the present. And I can tell you without fear of contradiction that the notion that God loves everyone the same was unknown until the late 1800s, maybe the early 1900s, with the rise of liberal theology in the United States. Up until then, the church clearly understood and clearly always taught that God loves His church. Now, the church has always been cautious about naming names because none of us are all-knowing, and so we could never say that this guy's too far gone for God to save. But to say that God loves everyone the same, even those He casts into hell, that's an innovation of the last 125 years. Around the year 300 A.D., the Latin theologian Lactantius wrote a book on the anger of God. And already 1,700 years ago, people were asserting that God couldn't have anger, hatred, or wrath because we considered these to be faults in men. And God must, they said, therefore, love everyone the same. And Lactantius just says, yeah, they present the, uh, the matter this way popularly, but it is a gross error. In fact, he writes, if God is not angry with the impious and unrighteous, it is clear that he does not love the pious and the righteous. He who loves the good also hates the wicked, and he who does not hate the wicked does not love the good. These things are so connected by nature that the one cannot exist without the other. 1,700 years later, liberal logic, a.k.a. foolishness, argues that since God tells us to love our enemies, therefore, we have to assume that He loves everyone the same. Of course, the problems with this reasoning are multiple, but I'll just give the three most obvious. First of all, generally, our enemies are those who have done something to us that we don't like. They aren't our enemies by way of principle or moral standing, whereas God's enemies are those who have set themselves against the Lord and against His Christ, as Psalm 2 puts it. Secondly, God's code of behavior is not to be determined by us and ours, nor is His behavior always to be modeled by us. In other words, God, as God, knows things that we don't. And as the sovereign creator, ruler, and judge of the universe, he acts in ways that are completely right for him, but would be totally inappropriate for us. And thirdly, the whole objection is really just rooted in a denial of the inspiration and therefore binding authority of Scripture. Liberal theology has always been bent on denying the inspiration of Scripture. That's the driving force behind the constant search for contradictions in the Bible. Because if there are contradictions, then it can't be from God, and then we're left with the dictates of reason in order to determine truth without going into a sustained rebuttal of this tomfoolery. We'll dispatch with the whole mess and just say that we, as Reformed Christians, accept the Bible as the infallible Word of God, preserved by His sovereign care and placed in our hands by His providence. And when we actually open the Scriptures, 
we find passages such as these. Psalm 5, verses 4 through 6. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Psalm 11, verses 4 through 5. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, His soul hates. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. These six things the Lord hates, yea, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who soars discord among brethren. Now you might be wondering, why is pastor talking about God's hatred of the wicked? I thought the subject was the wrath of God. Well, I'm glad you asked. The point I'm trying to make is that God pours out His wrath on His enemies, those whom He hates. I have to doubt the intellectual honesty of a man who says that God loves everyone alike, yet still casts at least some of them into an everlasting hell. I can't imagine that anyone can hold these two ideas up before their mind's eye and not see the massive problem of trying to believe both at the same time. Granted, there are a lot of evangelical Christians who would eschew the label liberal, but would still hold to the idea that God hates the sin but loves the sinner. People of this persuasion would handle the text of our sermon this morning quite differently. They would assert, and I'm not making this up, I've heard it with my own ears and I'm willing to bet many of you have too, they would assert that David is clearly sinning here in Psalm 139. Christians, they say, are not to have such an attitude. Any kind of statement in this way is always sinful, they would say, whether in the New Old Testament or in the New Testament. Now, we have just swept away the objection that God doesn't hate His enemies because we've seen three very clear passages from Psalms and Proverbs that state in no uncertain terms that there are people whom the Lord hates. In Romans 9, verse 13, which is actually quoting Malachi 1, God declares, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now the liberal advocates of the universal fatherhood of God and universal brotherhood of man have argued that hated in this text means loved less. I know it's hard to control the urge to laugh, but these people are dead serious. Of course, if they were right, then why wouldn't loved mean hated less? Esau I've hated, but Jacob I've hated less. Would it be comfort to the children of God to be told that God hates them less than those He sends to hell? Would it comfort the children of God to be told that those whom He sends to hell, God loves them a little less than He loves His own children? You see the insanity, the the crazy lengths that people have to go to when they refuse to take the Bible seriously as the very Word of God. If we're prepared to take the Bible seriously and say, okay, there are people whom the Lord hates, we come to the obvious question, which is the second point of our sermon, who, against whom does God's wrath burn? Who does He hate? Well, we don't need to speculate because our text specifically names those whom God hates and therefore those against whom His wrath is reserved. Jesus prays in verse 19, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. 
In the following verses, these wicked are further described or labeled. Bloodthirsty men, men who speak against you wickedly, those who take your name in vain, those who hate you, and those who rise up against you. I think it might be helpful to look at these one at a time. Bloodthirsty. Wow, I wonder if there's a better description of our society. Since 1973, this land of the free and home of the brave has mercilessly slaughtered 62 million infants. Mao Zedong's cultural revolution killed 20 million. The Soviet regime killed 20 million Soviet citizens. The Third Reich is reputed to have killed 6 million. Our jaws drop in horror at such numbers, but combine all three in their small potatoes compared to us. I could easily include the countless human lives snuffed out by our involvement in unjust wars, but we don't need to leave our own shores. What do we say of the murder rates in our inner cities? The weekly death tolls by violence in New York, Chicago, D.C., and L.A. rival the death tolls of wartime. And it's if we can't get enough of the needless bloodshed, our entertainment is full of murder. The body count of heroes in our movies and TV shows make the Colombian drug cartels look like the Vienna Boys Choir. And this is how we, the God bless America, God shed his grace on thee, America, this is how we entertain ourselves. Next, our passage identifies those who speak wickedly against God, those who take his name in vain. A couple weeks ago, I issued a hypothetical challenge. I'm sure you remember. It would be an odd experience for you to hear the name of any mortal man slandered or cursed before you heard the name of God or the name of Jesus Christ slandered, cursed, or invoked in vain. The great Reformed preacher George Bethune wrote, In other sins, we may forget that God is nigh. But the profane swearer, by the very terms of his oath, confesses that he is in God's presence, acknowledges his power and the reality of his fearful curses on the guilty. Yet, in this spirit, he blasphemes. He sins willfully, therefore foully, intelligently, therefore inexcusably, impudently, therefore desperately. And when the wrath of God kindles unquenchable fires around his lost soul, his wailing cry will be, I have got that for which I have prayed. I taunted God to do his worst. I called for damnation and hell, and here they are. Question 100 of our beloved catechism asks, Is then the profaning of God's name by swearing and cursing so heinous a sin that his wrath is kindled against those who do not endeavor, as much as in them lies, to prevent and forbid such cursing and swearing? And the answer, it undoubtedly is. For there is no sin, or sin greater or more provoking to God than the profaning of His name, and therefore He has commanded this sin to be punished with death. Next, our text mentions those who hate God and rise against Him. Now, in a very real sense, this is by nature every single sinner. Our catechism rings from us the admission that I am prone by nature to hate God. Now, because it's a violation of God's law and because God is the creator of the universe, all sin, as the late R.C. Sproul once put it, is cosmic treason. All sin is revolt, rebellion, insurrection, and revolution against the rightful ruler of all things. Imagine that you had some pet mice. And one day you discovered that these little vermin were plotting your overthrow. 
They began killing each other in protest of your ownership. They began swearing and cursing at each other in your name. Some had even taken to denying your existence and developed a theory that their little cages had formed all of their own. They began purposely trying to catch deadly diseases so that they could bite you and your children when you fed them. Now, you'd laugh at their audacity. You'd mock their ridiculousness, or as the psalmist says, hold them in derision. And at the same time, you'd rightly burn in hatred toward them. And if you deemed fit to destroy these little vermin, you'd kill them all without batting an eye or losing any sleep, and no one would judge this unjust or unfair. Now, make the mice a million times inferior and make the power of the, the owner of the mice a million times superior, and you're still not in the same ballpark as man's rebellion against God. That's why Psalm 2 says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. God's wrath and hatred burn against the bloodthirsty, the blasphemers of His name, the rebels against His law. And we play a dangerous game with our souls when we forget or neglect this truth. I've said it before and I'll say it again. When people balk at the concept of God's hatred, wrath, or anger, they are betraying a frighteningly low view of God and an equally low view of the evil of sin. We come to our third point, and that is God's wrath and how is it to be or how it is mirrored by us. Now, there are only a few ways that we can take the words of this psalm. If we choose the wrong way, We're stuck with that wrong way for all of Scripture, not just the Psalms. Now, the solutions offered to the supposed problem of the text are really only three. The fourth solution isn't a solution to a problem, per se. Rather, it's a denial that there is a problem in the text. And I'll give you a spoiler alert. The fourth way is the right one. We've already stated or dealt with the first wrong way, which is to say that David is sinning here in Psalm 139. This solution doesn't work because Christ, not David, is the speaker of this psalm. And secondly, even if David were the speaker of the psalm, he would still be under divine inspiration expressing to us how he mirrored the character of God. God has a righteous, holy hatred for the wicked, his enemies. It is holy, or as our text words it, a perfect hatred for the sinner as a sinner. As the children of God, we should mirror in a finite way the love of God. And likewise, as the children of God, we should mirror in a finite way the hatred of God for the sin and sinner. It may be confusing at times, but we mustn't dodge the duty. Now, we may love them on other levels, as neighbors, relatives, classmates, but as enemies of God, we must bear, to the extent that we as finite beings are capable of it, the hatred of God for the sinner as a sinner. Now a second and equally wrong suggestion is to say that the Old Testament was a period of law and vengeance, whereas the New Testament is a period of grace and forgiveness. On this theory, the hatred expressed by David in Psalm 139 was perfectly acceptable in the Old Testament period, but it's not acceptable in the New Testament period. Well, this is clearly not a solution because it would force us to say that the New Testament ethic is superior to the Old Testament ethic, which in turn means that either God has changed or that the Old Testament is not inspired by God in the same way that the New Testament is. 
The curses that David invokes on God's enemies in the Psalms, they're not unique to the Old Testament, by the way. In the New Testament, we find Jesus and the apostles cursing God's enemies and calling down God's wrath upon them. So cursing God's enemies and calling down the wrath of God upon them is not unique to the Old Testament. It's clearly on display in the New Testament as well. If anything, God's wrath against sin comes to be seen more clearly in the New Testament. In the New Testament, we read of the life of our Lord Jesus Christ who suffered the infinite wrath of God against sin. God willed the death of His own Son as a demonstration of this wrath and hatred. And besides, you know the commandment, love your neighbor as yourself? Those aren't some red-letter words of Jesus in the Gospels. No, they're words from blood-red Leviticus. Now, the third wrong solution is the liberal answer, which is to say, see, there are contradictions in the Bible, and that proves it isn't inspired by God. Well, the right answer is to say that there is no problem to be solved in the text. These are the true words of God and must be seen and accepted for what they are, let the chips fall where they will. I read a book once called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. The difficulty the author had was that he wanted to say that God loves everyone the same while admitting that Scripture repeatedly declares that there are men who God hates. Yeah, when God says yes and you wanted him to say no, you're going to have a hard time arguing that yes means no. But once you realize that Christ is the speaker of the psalm, the objections against the curses and summonings of God's wrath vanish. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? If Christ says it, then it must be right because as God, He is the author of Scripture. Now there are two keys in our text for answering the question. The first is the fact, which we've stated multiple times, that Jesus is the speaker of the Psalms. This is not David blowing a gasket with the Philistines or some jerks in his court. This is Christ pronouncing his and therefore God's wrath and hatred of the wicked. And the second key is in those last two verses. Let's read them again. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Notice that the psalmist is appealing to God on the basis of his own pure heart. This shows us that Christ is a speaker, because David could never have done that. Jesus here is speaking as the true king of God's people, our representative in the covenant. And he has just said, I love those who hate you, who rise against you. I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them as my enemies. And in the very next breath, he says, search me and know my heart. You'll see there's no wicked way in me. In other words, this loathing of rebels against God, this hatred against them, this counting them as my enemies because they're God's enemies, none of this is sin. Christ says, in essence, I cannot be charged with having wicked ways or any sin in my heart. Now, the personal application of what we studied this morning, I'm sure this is what you've been waiting for, is this. We take God's enemies as our own in Christ rather than considering as enemies those who might have wronged us. That's how we can hold two apparently disparate things together without contradiction. The Bible plainly teaches us to love our enemies. We're told that if we don't forgive men from the heart, then God will not forgive our sins. 
And so that I'm not misunderstood, misconstrued, or misrepresented, I'm going to hammer on this point a bit more. In Psalm 51, verse 4, we read, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. David wrote this psalm after he was confronted by Nathan the prophet for having killed Uriah. Now David's sin was that he took advantage of a married woman and then had her husband rubbed out when he found out that she was pregnant. Put yourself for a second in the victim's shoes and then reread that verse. Against you, you only, have I sinned? Is this belittling David's sin against Bathsheba and Uriah? Absolutely not. The subsequent history of David's reign demonstrates quite clearly that he was severely disciplined by God for these heinous sins. What the passage is teaching us is that God is so much more glorious, so much greater than any finite creature. The sinfulness of sin lies in the fact that it is an affront to God. By comparison, the guilt against God is so great that the guilt against our fellow man, even when that guilt is adultery and murder, almost doesn't register. It's like putting an anvil on a balance and then a feather on the other side of the scales. The feather is real. No one will deny that. The feather may have great importance in its own right. It may represent very grave matters in its own realm. But compared to the anvil, its weight is negligible. And this is why Christ is so straightforward with us about forgiving those who have sinned against us. He says, if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. And he is not saying that forgiveness is earned. What Jesus is condemning is dishonest scales. You're acting as if your feather outweighs God's anvil. By withholding forgiveness, you're essentially saying, Your sin against me is greater than any of my sins against God, and therefore I am in the right to withhold forgiveness from you. I assume you're horrified at hearing that verbalized, and I can only pray that God grant us that we be equally horrified at the act itself. So you see, we're not advocating harboring ill will, malice, or spite in our hearts against our fellow man. But just as children manifest family traits, so we should manifest the traits of our Heavenly Father. As we said just a couple minutes ago, as the children of God, we should mirror in a finite way the love of God. And as the children of God, we should mirror in a finite way the hatred of God for the sin and the sinner. It may be confusing at times, admittedly, but that cannot be an excuse for disobedience. I don't think it takes any kind of Einstein intellect to understand that both are possible. That we can harbor no personal ill will toward a man and yet bear perfect hatred towards him as an enemy of God. (coughs) Excuse me, it seems to me that we can all understand this and that we all instinctively know that this is the right way to view life, the Christian life in particular. We don't harbor any secret, malicious desires against a man. We don't wish him any ill will. We don't want to see him get hurt in a car wreck. We don't want to see his family get sick. We don't want to see his dog get run over by a car. We don't even want to see him lose his hair. In whatever relation he stands, relative to us, as our fellow man, we wish him no harm. 
But we cannot truly love God and his kingdom without simultaneously hating his enemies. It's not really rocket science. You can't love righteousness without hating evil. But evil does not haunt the earth as a ghostly, impersonal force, killing infants in the womb, promoting sodomy and Marxism in our halls of learning, destroying marriages, and corrupting the word of God with heresy and compromise. Sin and evil are not impersonal forces that wreak havoc on the earth in the absence of demonic and human actors. And thus, it will not be the sin that God casts into hellfire, but the sinner. We'll conclude simply with saying that in our text, Jesus expresses, as the head of the church, God's hatred and wrath against his and our enemies. Jesus prays in this psalm that God would save his people by judging his enemies. And we are actually acknowledging this, as we learned in the children's sermon, when we pray, thy kingdom come.